Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we are starting the book of Jonah this morning. So if you want to turn to the, in your Bibles in the Old Testament, uh, right after Obadiah, we just finished Obadiah, and so we're going to be uh, in Jonah. We're going to be looking at the first two chapters of the book of Jonah. And there's a total of four chapters, so uh, I'm thinking, I'm anticipating it'll probably be a two-week study. And uh, Jonah... So, most people are familiar, you know, even if you're saved or not saved, a lot of people are familiar with who Jonah was, or they at least they're familiar with Jonah. Uh, they, maybe they've only seen the VeggieTales movie, uh, and uh, so then they know about Jonah that way. But uh, there's, you know, there's all these stories about Jonah and, uh, and the whale. And by the way, the Bible doesn't say that it was a whale. It was a great fish that uh, swallowed Jonah. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of skepticism as to whether Jonah actually existed and uh, I believe definitely, most definitely, that he did exist. Jonah was a real person. Uh, he lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we know this because in Second Kings 14.25, it's regarding Jeroboam's reign during that time. And it says that he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah was a prophet. He didn't just prophesy to the Ninevites, but he also prophesied there regarding the, the things that Jeroboam II would do there in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now Gath-Hefer, where Jonah was from, is in the Galilee region, and it's in the territory of Zebulun, and it happens to be actually be only about two miles away from Nazareth, where another famous prophet was from. Um, like I said, Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, which were Jews. But, as we're going to find out this morning, he was also called to preach to the Gentiles, as recorded here in this book. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes we only think of the New Testament, you know, the gospel going to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, and from then on, the gospels to the whole world. But God had a heart for the Gentiles, and you see it throughout the Old Testament as well. The, Jesus was prophesied to be a light unto the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. And so here, even in the Old Testament, you see God's heart for all people, not just the Jews. Um, and... Uh, the other thing, Jesus refers to the prophet Jonah as a real person, and that for me, that's good enough. If Jesus says that he existed, he existed uh, as a real person. And the story of Jonah as real, including the story about the great fish, all those events occur. Jesus legitimizes it. In fact, he says that it's a sign of, it's, Jonah was a sign of the, the coming of the Son of Man. So, And we'll look at that as we get through those different places in, in the book of Jonah. But let's begin here with Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so the command to go to Nineveh, God says that great city. Now that word great means it's referring to importance, size, and significance. And all those were true about Nineveh. Nineveh was great with regard to importance. 
It was a very old city. In fact, it was established by Nimrod, which is recorded back in Genesis chapter 10. So it was a very old city. It would become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So that makes it somewhat important. And uh, it happens actually, by the way, to be near the modern day city of Mosul or Mosul in Iraq today, very close to there. It was, so it was great with regard to importance. It was also great with regard to size. Uh, we find out in the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 10, that there were more than 120,000 children below the age of discerning right from wrong. So whatever age that is, maybe up to four years old, you know, uh, as soon as children know what's right or wrong, there's 120,000 below that age. So, uh, you know, if... If you take that and you extrapolate it out, if, if there were a mother and a father and only one child in the family, you're talking like 360,000 people. But, you know, that's kind of uh, probably not realistic. Probably more realistic would be probably closer to a million people in Nineveh. So this is a, a very large city. Now, Nineveh, the city itself, was not that physically large. Uh, the inner walls were at least eight miles in circumference, so that's, that's pretty good size. But it, we find out that it was a three-day journey to walk through it. And what's probably included with Nineveh, Nineveh there's, there's three cities that are nearby, and they're about 20 miles apart from each other. Uh, one of them is Rehoboth, another was Kela, and another was Reason. And so that was probably all considered part of Nineveh uh, itself. Uh, I can really identify with that. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and lived, grew up in the South Bay, San, you know, in San Jose, actually, Campbell and then in San Jose. And that's at the very south tip of the Bay Area, and if you get in your car and you start driving, uh, you're driving through San Jose. Pretty soon, you're in Mountain View, and then you're you, you know town after town after town after town, and it feels like you've never left the city. And you can drive like that for a couple hours, literally a couple hours, before you actually get out of what it feels like. Out of, you're passing through different towns, but it's just you're just constantly traveling. And I, I think that's to me, I can identify with. Uh, the size of Nineveh in that regard. So it was great with regard to size. It was also great with regard to significance. And the reason why was that the Ninevites, or the Assyrians actually in totality, they would be used by the Lord as His instrument of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. God was going to use them as his instrument of judgment. But not only that, they were significant because God was also, uh, they would not only be an instrument of judgment, but they would also be an object of mercy, as we're going to read here. You know, anyone needing God's mercy is significant. Anyone needing God's mercy is significant. And since Everyone needs God's mercy. Would you agree with me? Everyone needs God's mercy. That that means that everyone is significant to God. That gives people significance alone. Sometimes people feel insignificant. Maybe you feel insignificant in your family. Maybe you're the least of your family, or or maybe in your job site, you know, you're the low person on the totem pole. You feel so insignificant, or maybe in this community, or, or you just feel like you're a number in this nation. You know, you feel so sig- insignificant. But I can tell you this morning, in the eyes of God, you're not insignificant. Everybody has significance to God. And so God gives Jonah the command. He says, cry out against uh, Nineveh, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
their wickedness. You know, the Assyrians were legendary for their vicious cruelty. And we've, we've talked about that before. I'm not going to go into detail, but they were cruel, viciously cruel people. They were also, Assyria was also very powerful at this time anyways, militarily, and they were also wealthy. Nineveh, the city itself, was an incredibly well-fortified city. And so if you put all those things together, they had pride, probably. I'm I'm sure they did. They had a sense of invincibility. I'm sure they did. And they had opulent luxury. You know when you have pride, you feel like you're invincible, and you got lots of money? You know what happens? Sin enters in. Because the the heart of man is wicked, right? And when you have those, those ingredients, the human heart is prone to sin. And so these Assyrians, they were wicked. And so God, the wickedness rises up to God. And so God is telling uh, uh, Jonah to go to preach to these people. Now, prior to Jonah being commanded to go to Nineveh, uh, Nineveh apparently had experienced a couple of plagues. One in uh, 765 B.C. and one in 759 B.C. And there had also been a solar eclipse in 763 B.C. The reason why I bring up those dates, it's thought that the national repentance of Nineveh occurred under a guy by the name of Ashurdan III, and he reigned from 773 to 755 B.C. You don't need to... Maybe that's not that important to you, but... What it, if that's true, what it, what it points to is that the coming of Jonah to preach to Nineveh, it wasn't like the first time God was trying to get their attention. They had been warned before. It wasn't just something out of the blue. All of a sudden, Nona, uh, Jonah, Nona, Jonah shows up uh, to, uh, to preach to them. God evidently had been warning them of judgment through national disasters, as well as something as ominous as a solar eclipse. In those, in, that, in those days, solar eclipses, that was a big thing. It's all of a sudden everything's dark around you. Um, so it makes me think that God was warning them in advance. And Jonah was probably just the final, final warning. You know, it makes me think about all the warning signs that our nation keeps seeing. There's things that keep happening in our nation, and I think God's trying to get our attention. God, I think, is calling this nation, and, and not just the nation on a national level, but you and I, to repentance. And so Jonah's called to go to Nineveh. What does he do? Verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You know, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh for one reason and for one reason only. It's because he hated them. He hated the Assyrians. He was afraid that they would repent and that God would spare them of his judgment. He didn't want them to be spared. Uh, When God does spare the people of Nineveh, Jonah gets upset. And in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, which we'll get to probably next week, he says this, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I previously fled to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah said, man, I, I knew that you're a merciful God. And so Jonah didn't want them to be spared. Jonah didn't feel that they deserve mercy. And Jonah was being a jerk, <laughs> literally. And so Jonah here decides to flee from the presence of the Lord to Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was east of Israel. Tarshish was 
180 degrees in the opposite direction to the west. Now, a lot of Bible scholars think Tarshish was either Spain or Great Britain. However, in the days of Solomon, in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 21, there's another passage in 2 Chronicles as well, but in this verse, 2 Chronicles 9, 21, it's speaking about Solomon and his ships and, and stuff. And it says, For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. So evidently, it seems like from this passage of Scripture that a round trip to Tarshish by sea took approximately three years. And that would make it probably a lot further than Spain or Great Britain. And if you look at what they brought back, ivory, apes, and monkeys... It's quite possible, I'm not saying it is because I'm not a scholar, but it's quite possibly could be that Tarshish may have even been as far as Central Africa or East Asia. And you say, well, what's the point? The point is this. Whatever the case is, the point is Jonah was fleeing as far as humanly possible to get away from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to get as far away as he could, so he's going to the farthest end of the known world. Now, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. And being a prophet of the Lord, Jonah probably knew Scripture. I mean, he would have to. He probably knew Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which you'll find out later on you will, uh, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah probably intellectually understood that there was nowhere he could run from the Lord. I think we have that same understanding, right? There's nowhere. We, we can't escape from the eyes of the Lord. But you see, right now, Jonah is in rebellion. And his emotions are taking over. And he, in his rebellion, is going to run away as far as he can. At this point, it's not an intellectual decision. I'm going to run from the Lord. It's an emotional decision. It's a moral choice. I'm going to get as far away from the Lord as possible. When we backslide, that's exactly what we're doing. We know. We're Christians. We've read the Bible. We know that God sees us everywhere we go. And yet, it's like, if I, if I can get far enough away, he won't see me. Well, it's, it's a moral choice because we know. I'm sure Jonah knew. But his willful disobedience caused him to do that. And it's interesting here how the Bible describes his act of willful disobedience. First of all, he didn't take a free ride. He had to pay a fare to board the ship. And uh, who knows what the fare was, but I'm sure he had no idea how costly the price of his rebellion would be. Because sin has a price. And notice that he goes down to Joppa, and he goes down below the deck on the ship. You see, because disobedience, it's always going to exact a heavy toll on you and I. And the only direction we can go when we're in disobedience is down, down, down. It makes me want that one song. There's a down, down. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know what's ironic about this? Is where Jonah is at, where he's fleeing from the Lord. It's in Joppa. That's the, the, uh, the modern city of Jaffa, actually, in Israel. And it's ironic that in Joppa, this is where Jonah is disobeying God's command to go preach to the Gentiles. And many generations later, it'd be in Joppa where Peter 
gets the command to go preach to the Gentiles, and he goes in obedience. Very interesting. Verse 4. So Jonah, he's on this ship. He's heading for Tarshish, trying to get as far away from the Lord as he can. Verse 4 says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. Now this must have been an extraordinary storm, because these are seasoned Phoenician sailors, and for them to be frightened enough to, to cry out as pagans to their gods for deliverance, it had to have been more than just a, you know, a, a, just a rough water. It was probably really bad. Verse 6, So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Casting lots, it's like drawing straws. You know, that, that's a chance selection. We know, it's like, you know, come on, you're just, that, there's nothing to it. It's, it's, just, it's just chance, right? Well, when God wills, he can overrule and control even so-called chance events. And God's going to get a hold of Jonah. And so he allows the lot to fall on Jonah. And so now all the eyes, all these guys, it's like he's the one guy in the ship, and they're looking at him. And now they want to know who he is and why this is happening. They said, Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Isn't that interesting? Here Jonah's in complete disobedience to the Lord. And yet here, when he's confronted, he professes to fear the Lord. And that, yet look at his actions. He's doing just the opposite. Now, the pagans usually considered their gods to be local deities. You, know, you had the god of Nineveh, the god of, you know, wherever. They had all these different gods in different places that they worshipped. So when Jonah says he fears the god of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, it had to have freaked out the Phoenicians. It's like, whoa, this god's like bigger than all these local gods. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm, become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. I think Jonah realizes now the jig is up, you know. Uh, he's been caught. He's been exposed. He's been outed. He knows that, you know, God is getting a hold of him. He knows that he's caused this storm. And he knows that the storm is against, uh, is, is basically God's wrath against his disobedience. And what Jonah does here, I, I have to look at him and go, it's quite admirable what he does here. He knows the Phoenicians are innocent, at least with respect to the storm. And here he willingly acknowledges his guilt and accepts his punishment in order to spare the other men. 
The commentator John Gill wrote this. In this, Jonah was a type of Christ who willingly gave himself to suffer and die that he might appease divine wrath, satisfy justice, and save men. Only with this difference, Jonah suffered for his own sins, Christ for the sins of others. Jonah to endure a storm he himself had raised by his sins, Christ to endure a storm others had raised by their sins. We celebrate communion this morning, and that's exactly what we're remembering, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for sin. And he didn't pay for his sin, he paid for your and my sin. It's, it's what you and I have done in rebellion against God that he suffered. Verse 13. You've got to give these guys a lot of credit. Verse 13, nonetheless, or nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. I mean, these guys, they don't seem like they're really bad guys, even though they're pagans and stuff. They, they're feeling compassion on Jonah, and they want to help him avoid the wrath of God. So they're going to try to help get him out of trouble here. Proverbs 21, verse 30 says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Try as they might to try to deliver uh, Jonah from the wrath of God. God has a plan and a purpose, even in this punishment for Jonah. And these guys are actually going to end up intervening or interfering with what God is trying to do in Jonah's heart and in Jonah's life. Sometimes that's a tough thing as believers, you know. Uh, sometimes people come, they come to the church and they need help and stuff. And, and uh, you know, the first response is to want to help people. And, you know, and sometimes we've had some guys come here and you, you kind of, you don't know what their background is. You don't know, you know, what they're, why they're in the situation they're in, but they, they're asking for help. And sometimes, you know, it really takes a matter of praying. It's not, you can't just give one answer to every person. You really need to seek the Lord because sometimes, I think God is wanting to do, wanting these people to deal with some, something, and so he's allowing them to go through a judgment. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I don't want to get in between. And, of course, I'm not that smart, so I have to pray about those things because, you know, I, I would rather err on the side of mercy than on the side of judgment, right? Mercy always triumphs over judgment. Um, but here are these guys. They're trying to help Jonah avoid the wrath of God but the storm is getting, you know, they're rowing and they're rowing. And it's, God's like, you can try, but you ain't going to get over there. And he's making it more and more stormy, more and more tempestuous. It says, therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with this innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. What a difference in attitude between these men and the crowds who were standing before Pontius Pilate. In Matthew 27, verse 17, it says, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. 
Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And listen to what they said. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and our children. They hated Jesus so much, they didn't care. They just, they just wanted him to be destroyed. What a difference between this and the Phoenician sellers. They're like, God, don't hold us accountable for, for shedding the blood of this innocent man. Or keep us innocent of shedding this blood. And so they toss him over the board, and the storm is ceased. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. You know, sometimes when we sin as Christians, we get into a, back, you know, a state of backsliding. We think we're the only ones that are affected by it. And, uh, you know, I remember a time when I was backslidden. And I remember a lot of times God would bring other Christians around to confront me. And, uh, you know, or, or sometimes when he wouldn't bring a Christian around, he'd bring a, a, a non-Christian around. to come. Hey, I thought you were a Christian. What are you doing that, you know? And it's like, you know, busted. And, uh, and uh, uh God had done that with Jonah. And, you know, God can take bad situations, even situations of people being backslidden, and he can use it for his glory. And here, the men of Nineveh, man, they, they fear the Lord. They offer sacrifices to the Lord, and they take vows. And in, even in this tragic situation, even in Jonah's disobedience and everything that's going on, God received the glory in this situation and this whole episode, it convicted these guys and it changed them. Interesting. So Jonah's overthrown into the sea, verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, like I said, Scripture doesn't tell us it's a whale. It could very well have been a whale. It just doesn't tell us. It just says a great fish. Is it hard to believe? Well, Jesus referred to it as a historical fact. In Matthew 12, 40, he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, Sheol is the word Hades. It's basically talking about the grave in the Old Testament. You know, you and I, here he's thrown over, he's in the belly of the fish, and, he's, and here he's saying, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You know, we can never go too far that the Lord cannot hear us when we cry to Him. You can never go so far. You can never send too much where God can't hear you anymore. Psalm, again, Psalm 139, verse 8, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide uh, hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You can't... 
you can't hide from God in a, in a bad sense, right? I mean, in a good sense, you can't hide from him in your sin. But when you do, if you do sin and you do and you, you feel like you've gone so far, you're not too far for God if you cry out to him. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Sometimes God allows us to be torn. He allows us to go through hard things. And sometimes it's because of our sin. But God loves us. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, to punish us, to destroy us. It's to punish us to get us to repent of our sins and to turn to him. And he's so anxious. He's so willing to forgive us when we do. God's not through with Jonah. He's just waiting for Jonah to repent. And I like what F.B. Meyer says, to plunge beneath the wave is to fall into his arms. Just to surrender and give up. And just and God, God, that's where God wants us. Verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. You know, we may feel like Jonah sometimes. We've created our own predicament by our sin. We feel like we are cast out of his sight. And, you know, the enemy would say, yeah, you are cast out of his sight. You're no good. You can't, you know, you're, you're a hypocrite and all that stuff. And, and he would get you to try to stay out of fellowship, to stay out of the word, to stop praying because you're so bad. And you're so, you're just, you're, you're, you're beyond hope. But all we need to do is look again toward his temple and just turn back to the Lord and cry out to him. And he's so ready to forgive us. Verse 5, the waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Evidently, and I don't know how deep the Mediterranean was at that point, but evidently Jonah sank to the bottom of the sea where the moorings of the mountains, you know, the underneath the bottom of the sea where the, where the moorings of the mountains were, and he's laying in weeds. They're wrapped around his head, probably on the ocean floor, and it's at that point that he's swallowed by a great fish. I think VeggieTales has it wrong. <laughs> you know, the fish catches him as he's coming into. No, it sounds like he went all the way to the bottom, and then he got swallowed by the fish. I don't know. Verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And so here, now some people think that Jonah may have actually died and then, and then God resurrected him in there. I, I don't know. I, I personally don't necessarily believe that. But at some point, Jonah fainted. But he says he remembered the Lord and his prayer went up into your holy temple. And verse 8 is, is so profound. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. You know, God's the fountain of all mercy. And to regard worthless idols, to turn our hearts away from Him to other things, is to forsake our source of mercy. I love that. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And yet so often we turn away from the Lord, and yet He's the fountain of mercy for you and I. Verse 9, 
but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah here in these first two chapters, he experienced God's mercy on himself. He disobeyed. He rebelled from the Lord. He he knew God's will. He knew that he couldn't run from God, and yet he took a moral choice to run away from God, to disobey God, and to try to get as far away as he could. But you know, God pursues us when we're in sin. He loves you so much. He wants to draw you to you, and he's not gonna he's not gonna give up on you. Praise God that he doesn't give up on us. Amen. Uh, you know, I, I can count how many times the Lord, you know, I probably can't count how many times the Lord, when I'm in sin, the Lord's drawn me to him. He's, he just wants me to come back to him. And so Jonah here experienced God's mercy on himself. And it's going to have an impact on him. And next week, he's going to observe God's mercy on the Ninevites. And he's going to have a totally different attitude, which we're going to talk about. Because I think, that's a, I think it's a very important lesson next week because I think sometimes we look at people and we, we don't want them to have mercy because they've, they've been so cruel or they've done something so terrible. And it's like they deserve what they're getting. I, you know, I, I, I personalize it myself. And I think, you know, these, these ISIS people, they're kind of like the Assyrians in a way. You know, they're known for their vicious cruelty. They don't deserve mercy. Well, actually, yeah, they do. And they're like that woman that I talked about beginning before worship. They think that by doing this, they're actually going to go to heaven or go to paradise. They are so deceived by the enemy. And when you look at it and go, man, they are, it's the enemy who has lied to them. They are people that Jesus Christ died for, just like he died for you and I. He died for them. And, 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 and he loves them, and he wants them to come to repentance. And so when we have that kind of an attitude, you know, I think it changes our attitude when we realize that. Well, Jonah is not at that point yet. And so uh, he's going to have a different attitude, and, and God's going to deal with him in that regard there. And, and I'm so thankful for the book of Jonah because, you know, I think we can identify in so many ways with Jonah here. And here we have God's word to show us how we should respond. And so we're going to have communion this morning. And uh, before I'm going to close this in prayer, but. Uh, just, uh, I think the worship team is coming up for communion. Yeah, if you would. Communion, of course, is open to uh, anyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And again, just reminding us of what Jesus did on the cross for us. You know, he who knew no sin became sin for us. You know, he, he took the punishment that we deserve. We, we deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from God in hell. And yet Jesus Christ, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to pay that price for us. Why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer while we're waiting for Luke. There he is. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the lesson that we read in Jonah. Lord, God, I, I, uh, 
I just thank you, Lord, that you pursued Jonah. And Lord, I know that you feel the same way about each one of us. When we, when we walk away from you, Lord, we try to run as far as we can. And yet, Lord God, you pursue us because you love us so much. And Father, I just reminded of the, the, the father of the prodigal son who, who was waiting, waiting at the edge of his field, waiting for his son to come back, straining to see him coming back. And Lord, God, I just picture you when we're in disobedience, Lord, that you're there just straining, waiting for us to come back to repent of our sins. And I, Lord, I thank you that you don't give up on us, that you pursue us, Lord, in your love. And so this morning, I thank you for pursuing each one of us. Lord, we were in rebellion against you. Lord, we were doing our own thing. Lord, we were worshiping idols. And yet, Lord God, you pursued us and you drew us to you. And we thank you for that. And this morning, as we remember your sacrifice on the cross, Lord, we thank you for the price that you paid for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.